Welcome to the Future of Growth podcast with Agrify. Here, we'll be exploring all things related to cannabis, ag tech, controlled environment agriculture, vertical farming, cultivation science, industry trends, and more. Informed by science and driven by data, episodes will enlighten our audience through open dialogue with thought leaders, innovators, and industry disruptors who are forging the future of growth. Join our host, David Kessler, Chief Science Officer at Agrify, as he dives into the many facets that cannabis and agriculture have to offer. Stay connected with Agrify by joining us on all platforms at Agrify Corp. and by visiting our website, www.agrify.com. Sit tight for another episode of The Future of Growth, coming at you now. Hello, everyone. I'm David Kessler, the Chief Science Officer at Agrify, and thank you so much for joining me for The Future of Growth. Joining me today is a gentleman who needs no introduction, Chris Kilhim, also known as the Medicine Hunter. You are an author, an educator, a yogi. You've conducted research in over 45 countries on medicinal plants, working with companies to develop and popularize traditional plant-based foods and medical products, as well as introducing them into the market successfully with an emphasis and an eye towards social responsibility. Chris, Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Where are we going today? Well, I'm here in uh, Denver, Colorado. Where are you joining us from? Western Massachusetts. My wife and I are out near Amherst. So we're out in the country, uh, which has been a godsend during COVID-19, you know, because we can still get out and about. And um, it's a beautiful spring now. I'm looking out at our deck and... Uh, it's it's all starting to happen. We could still get hammered. Everybody knows that. We could still get like a 19-foot snowstorm on April 1st. We yep. know that. The but, North you know, is variable. Everybody's out raking their lawns just pretending that this is going to last. So that's where we are. I love it. And while you're out and the sun is shining, make the most of it. And like you said, we've all been cooped up a little bit with COVID. So get yep. those solar batteries recharged and please get outside. Um, it's a wonderful time of year. The plants are starting to break bud from dormancy. The uh, perennials are coming up. Tell me, what is blooming in your garden right now? Well, let's see. Um, I guess the first things that'll happen, and we haven't seen them yet, are, will be the crocuses. Mm -hmm. And um, then probably forsythia. You know, we get a ton of forsythia around here. They just go riotously yellow all over the place. And, um, you know, then actually the grasses, the grasses will start to green all over the valley. And um, then we're looking, you know, we have a massive number of deciduous trees here. And in about two, three weeks, maybe two weeks, they'll all start to red bud. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from then on, it's just natural chaos out there. That's it. Then spring is here. And I really hope we don't get any of those big snowstorms. That's yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you seem to have an affinity and an affection for plants. How did you transition that interest or passion into ethnobotany? Well, I, I had this, um, according to my friends at the time, I had this unrealistic fantasy 
that I wanted to travel around the world investigating medicinal plants and natural remedies, and I wanted other people to pay for it. And my friends just, you know, kind of like, you know, they were kind about it, but basically, yeah, you on what planet sort of guy. And um, it actually took a long time. It mm -hmm. took a long time to get to what I do now, traveling all over the globe, investigating, you know, herbs, spices, fruits, foods of different kinds, and helping to establish sustainable chains of trade with, you know, companies all over the world and, and indigenous native people, whether they're in the mountains of Sichuan, China, or Siberia, or Vanuatu, South Pacific, or Congo. And so, um, that, you know what, I can't say that I was especially some sort of, you know, unusual plant lover as a kid. I mean, I liked nature a lot, you know, mm -hmm. I was in it, always playing in the woods, but never, you know, I, it wasn't like I was unusual in some way, you know, in an early age, he was looking at plants through a microscope. I didn't do any of that. Um, but eventually, uh, especially after taking LSD in 1967, um, you know, that was really a gateway experience. I got involved in natural foods, mm -hmm. yoga, meditation, uh, mm -hmm. herbs, spices, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, you know, all kinds of stuff, Tai Chi, Qigong, you know, it all just kind of went blammo thanks to a good walloping, you know, dose of LSD on a great sunny Saturday afternoon. And uh, in boarding school, I might add, boarding schools are exceptional places to learn about sex and drugs. So in any case, uh, at some point, not long after that, I, I went to an organic farm that was uh, in the town next to where I grew up about a half hour outside of Boston. And I, I had heard of this place. I knew where it was. So I showed up and I just happened to show up as this guy named Ben Charles Harris was about to start an herb walk. And I said, what's an herb walk? And he was like one of these characters, you know, I'm like right out of central casting. He's like, you want to know what an herb walk is? Well, come along. You know, one of those guys, like all, sort of part carnival barker, but fabulous human being. And we went all over the fields and, and forests for an hour or two with him pointing out plants that I grew up with my entire life. I recognized them all, didn't know what they were called but I knew them all. Oh yeah, yeah, that flower. I see that everywhere. And he'd say, now see this one, this one's good for headache. And I'd be like, really? You know, and this one for digestion and this one for the liver and on and on. That went a long way to kind of igniting my fascination. Uh, wound up working in the natural products industry and retail for a long time, mm -hmm. learning about herbs any way I possibly could, you know, seminars, people coming through books, I had read zillions of books. And eventually, I became expert enough that in 1994, I started to go around the world on behalf of companies, you know, in their interest, uh, looking for unusual plants that they could bring to the market early or um, helping to develop, you know, good substantive chains of trade. And, and I've been doing that ever since and communicating about it. Uh, because I believe that this is an enormous privilege that, um, you know, gives me certain responsibilities. 
Absolutely. So it all started with, as you called it, a, a mind-opening uh, LSD experience, and psychoactives can definitely uh, have that impact. But it was also tied with your passion for the plant and for diverse plants. But you bring up a point. You even knew about the plants before you knew their scientific names. I have to tell you a little story, which is my yeah. grandmother was very Aristotelian. She had us on nature walks from the time we could crawl. Wonderful. And I loved it because we would ask her questions about what things were. And that's an Indian pipe. And uh, that's a japonica. Only in my graduate studies, when I finally was really taking ownership of my horticultural knowledge, did I find out that when she didn't know, she just made up the names sure. <laughs> because she said it with great authority. So she was my grandmother. I had great reverence for her. And because of it, I just became fascinated at her knowledge base. And, and I strived to try and achieve that same level of familiarity yeah. with plants and, and yep. to be as passionate as she was. And it sounds like you've had the opportunity to travel the world and see all sorts of interesting plants. I would never ask you to, you know, go over your favorite, but you've looked at everything from kava and cannabis to dragon's blood and ayahuasca. Are there any plants you'd like to kind of mention that have either been transformative in your life or that you think that are, are worth people taking a little time out of their day to really get a little more familiar with? Well, the, the plant that made my career and made my reputation um, before I actually thoroughly deserved it was kava. Mm -hmm. In 1995, I went to Vanuatu, South Pacific, way, way, way before that crappy TV show Survivor did and <laughs> built that phony village off the capital. And, you know, I went deep, deep in uh, on the on behalf of a company that had hired me and uh, helped to establish the kava trade. And, and kava is a relaxing plant. It's not, it's legal, uh, it's non-alcoholic, it contains no art narcotic ingredients, but it, it's a tranquility promoting plant and people drink it in the evenings in the Pacific Islands. And that um, right before COVID-19 really mm -hmm. blew travel to pieces, I had been back down in Vanuatu continuing 25 years of work with this plant and uh, seeing communities there and traveling around in some of the remote villages and drinking you know, with native people. So, and kava as something that helps to mitigate stress and promote relaxation, there are a few things as good. So I would say that for the immersion into the culture, which is profound and remarkable, a Melanesian culture that I knew you know, little about except from some reading until I got there. I made a fabulous friendship with a, um, a guy who was a Tahitian prince who wow. he, had, he had neither materials nor money, but he was a Tahitian prince. And we did outlandish things together. And we had these massive, massive firewalks that were, you know, we'd have as many as a thousand people show up for these gigantic, gigantic events. And uh, we, we firewalked for six years uh, with groups as small as so 600 people and as large as a thousand. And, um, you know, so I would say that Kava and my, you know, I have gone to a great many places one time, but I prefer to go to places over and over and over again. Like I've been to the Amazon 35 times, you know, and that, 
gives me a real understanding of many things, not everything, but many things. And um, so it, it's actually, it's the places and the friendships, Kava in Vanuatu, Maka in the Peruvian Andes, where I've been working there for 23 years. And um, certainly, um, oh gosh, I mean, Ashwagandha in India, you know, great mind sharpening agent. I've been working, I've been going there and, and pursuing ashwagandha one way or another since 84. So I think it's it's the immersion into the cultures and, and the repetitive contact with the people that is the, the great reward for me. You want to be a part of the culture and not a tourist, if you will. And you've always in your writing and in your work shown not just an appreciation but really a desire to help and set up uh, sustainable business practices as a part of your, your working with these native cultures, sure. these indigenous groups. Talk a little bit about that, if you would, because I, I really do understand. I, my passion was orchids, and I watched international trade where we protect the plants through mm -hmm. CITES, yeah. but we have no responsibility for the culture of the people that are protecting these plants. And right. we ask farmers that can't feed their families not to essentially pick a dandelion in their backyard, a plant that grows wild and has no, no, no. value to them. Right. It means saving their family and, and literally putting food on the table. So obviously social responsibility is a very important element, but you have taken that near and dear and actually made it a part of your work. Maybe we well, can chat about that. Sustainability means that in every part of a chain, in this case, let's say with plants from field to finish, okay, from being in the ground to being in a supplement bottle at Whole Foods, let's, mm -hmm. let's make that equation, that every part of that chain thrives and prospers. Now, for the most part, in the herb industry globally, that's not true. Most of the people who cultivate and harvest botanicals work for a very, very low wage or often live below or at the poverty line, okay? And so when you go into, like, when I first started uh, working in Vanuatu, eh, the most we could get for per kilo of kava dry to companies, uh, the most the market would tolerate was like $8 a kilo. And it was better money than those people had ever seen, but it wasn't great money. Now, yeah. today, they're getting about $40 a kilo. That's wonderful. And so sometimes the sustainable projects start out only incrementally better than what everybody else is doing but with good environmental protective practices and uh, benefit sharing with communities. I mean, my friends and I have done a lot of stuff, you know, uh, helped to supply schools that had nothing at all, were basically empty buildings, um, helped to rebuild some schools, uh, rebuild a maternity clinic, run a dental office, free internet for people up in the Andes, um, a dental boat that we operated in the Amazon for like seven years, going to remote wow. villages and showing up with dentists and, and showing them how to fix their teeth and, and, you know, working on them and, and doing all that. I mean, you know, if you do well with something, like if I come to your country and we make a deal and, you know, we're all happy with it and you're not feeling like you're getting ripped off or anything, 
and you know, and I have in mind that I want everybody at home to pay more over time, not less. You know, um, we can work together to make that happen. And now I go back and I see people in Vanuatu, for example, which is hilariously remote. Mm -hmm. I mean, remote and remote and remote. And, you know, they're doing well. They have new clothing. The kids have school supplies. They've got more access to medical, although it's not great. Um, they have outboard motors for their boats because that that revolutionizes their lives. And we may go, oh, no, but petroleum, <laughs> you know, these people are feeding their families, like you were saying before. So the sustainability part just has to be built into every project. And the fact of the matter is, if if I go like way out there and actually make something fabulously sustainable, what you're going to notice at the cash register is so incremental, unless companies really gouge on the sustainability, um, then, you know, you're fine. And if you know that this means that people on the other side of the world are thriving and that tea harvesters who typically make a pitiful living are somehow doing really well in this particular co-op, you're going to dig it. You're probably going to like that a lot. Absolutely. And it goes beyond fair trade because you're doing it not just for the economics, but really to support that indigenous culture. So yep. how do you set up, I guess, a farming operation somewhere as remote as Vanuatu and teach them sustainable practices as opposed to, you know, stripping the land of, of the plant? Or is that well, something that's already that balance is in place? They're the geniuses of that. I didn't need to teach them a thing. Really? They've got sustainability worked out. They've got they've got super clean and green, you know, agriculture going. They're, you know, these are people who've been doing this for a long, 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 long time, hundreds of generations. Okay. And they um what we needed to work with them on were things like drying methods. You know, mm -hmm. kava root is this big, tough, fibrous root with all these additional roots coming off of it. So we had to all figure out, like, what is the chip size? If you're going to chop that up and you're going to dry it so it can ship, um, what's the chip size? And, and how do you know when it's dry inside? And, you know, what, what are the things you have to do to do this well? And so that's the kind of infrastructure that... Initially, I worked on with them. Um, I have to say that what they've mostly got going on in villages is much more advanced than what we were doing. They, a lot of these villages now have uh, kind of tunnel solar dryers with really heavy duty uh, plastic tops and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, rebar and bamboo and, and, and chicken wire and um, they can dry tons and tons of kava at a time. So it, the agricultural part and the environmental part, we never had to offer a suggestion at all. Um, the actual, okay, how do we move this from out of the ground in your village to uh, northern New Jersey or southern France? Right. How do we do that? Uh, and that was what we did with them. And, and it's much, much more sophisticated now than it ever was. You know, people, 
when projects work well, whether it's Rosemary in Morocco, you know, I was involved with a company who used to buy uh, two and a half thousand tons of Moroccan rosemary every year. That's two and a half thousand tons. <laughs> and, um, oh man, those harvesters, they made a decent living. They put in all kinds of roads for the people so that people could get around more easily, built schools. Um, you know, a lot of these communities, and it's not true everywhere, but a lot of the people in these communities, when they get some money, they say, let's make this a nicer place to live. Not just, I got mine, I'm going to buy an expensive car. It's like, hey, let's put in some roads in this place. Aren't you tired of going down the hill on a donkey? You know, really? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's something that I wish that the cannabis industry, or I hope, uh, would learn from and adopt. I mean, we're just scratching the surface of social equity, but in terms of social responsibility, we're really not doing our part. We're not trying to preserve those land race genetics. We're not supporting the diverse indigenous people around the world that have essentially sheltered and fostered cannabis for you know millennia, not centuries. Yeah. And it is a time now where before we have these wonderful resources disappear, we should start paying a, an eye of attention to it and really working on a purposeful and intentional uh, plan to preserve not just the genetics, but the wonderful cultures and people that have been supporting them. Well, it's funny. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, my wife Zoe and I went to Jamaica. There was a uh, actually a cannabis festival in Negril, and it just seemed like a good time to go and enjoy Jamaica. And um, one of the most disappointing things I encountered there was Jamaican growers growing Blue Dream and Girl Scout cookies. Oh. And I was like, why? Who gives There's a shit about bread. these? <laughs> you know, you go back home. You can get those in, in you know, on, on a roadside stop in Vegas. Um, how about your really amazing, like traditional land race, Jamaican orange ganja? How about that? Mm -hmm. And um, I do believe that very much like heirloom vegetables, I mean, you, you know, we saw the rapid hybridization of all forms of vegetables, mostly for shipping purposes and fruits too. Um, but, you know, there's a, a, now a, a drive and a recognition that it's the heirloom foods that are hardier, more, you know, more disease and drought resistant, more interesting flavor wise, all of that. And I think that we will see um, a rising artisanal market companies who say, we don't want to be the PepsiCo of cannabis. We, but maybe we want to be the Aveda of cannabis. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I mean, a comparison, you know, um, and protecting land races. And also there's something else. And, and I know we talked about this a little bit um, when we spoke with each other, uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, um, I saw a really disturbing uh, TV show on YouTube. It was um, uh, Hamilton Morris from Vice mm -hmm. who goes around, you know, investigating different psychoactive things. And he had with him uh, that guy Arjun from Sensi Seeds in Amsterdam. And they went to Congo, and I've been to Congo, and Congo is this intense place. I mean, there's no place poorer than Congo, I think. It's mm -hmm. desperate. And they got these Congolese people to take them way the hell out. I mean, way out, you know, real labor. 
And they got to a place where there were lots of ganja plants and Arjun ran around going, oh God, we're going to make billions on this while he's snatching up seeds from plants all over the place and stuffing his pockets with them. And the translator is saying, is explaining to the Congolese people what he's saying. And they're starting to get pretty annoyed and concerned and like, well, what's happening here? And um, at one point, Hamilton said to him, you know, are, are we going to give him anything? And, and he said, that's not the way we do it. Now, they turned their backs on those people and they walked away from them with a treasure that could have revolutionized their very existence for generations. If you took a hundred seeds and you paid $1,000 a seed and you put it into community development and you had somebody honest and smart administering like how to take this village of people and improve life, you know, water wells, solar, all that stuff. I mean, things people need. Right. Um, the amount of money that the seed companies make, which is hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars through hybridization of these things, you wouldn't even have noticed that expense. No. And you could even say, look, as soon as we sell more than X amount, we're going to take, or, or just on a permanent basis, we're going to build in 2%. Yeah. 2% <laughs> that's going to go right back into this. And then everybody wins and you go, oh, you know, man, I want that Congolese ganja and that whole thing about what they're doing with those villages and how some kids are going to college now. You know, I want, I want to be smoking that shit. Damn straight. <laughs> and I, I laud the, the thought, but really what we need to do is laud the actions because mm -hmm. actions speak louder than words. And right. Just, you know, from my background, I'm looking at cannabis as a, a horticulturalist and I see yeah. a commercial crop that has only been looked at from the underground perspective. And when I look at orchids, where we are is what you see on the shelf in Home Depot at a plant nursery is what I call a complex polyhybrid. In, in most instances, it's very far removed from the native species and genus sure. of which it originated. And that's where we are with cannabis. Most of the cannabis people are consuming today is, is pretty removed. You don't agree that well, you think it's I, you close know, to land races? I, I live surrounded by growers, okay? I mean, people who... <laughs> Yeah, you know, no, I don't know how these guys do it. Actually, they're growing ganja the size of apple trees mm -hmm. using all only organic inputs, but obviously tons more than I do, you know. Uh, but the point is they're pouring love and care and attention into these plants and getting spectacular stuff that's adapted to the, you know, the terroir and the, the, the weather here and all of that. And I have to say, I mean, even though I don't think that addresses anything about land race strains or um, equitable sharing with people from whom, you know, these original strains derive, um, there's some beautiful, beautiful artisanal work being done. And I know um, when my wife and I went to the Emerald Cup mm. uh, a couple of years ago, first of all, I didn't really like that event. There was an awful lot of glitzy, great, big, humongous, you know, it didn't appeal to me. But one thing that I loved was that in one of the pavilions where they were selling products, there were a couple of large stands, uh, Mendocino, uh, 
uh, cannabis growers cooperatives. And so it'd be like, you know, the, the menu would be like, you know, um, you know, superhero diesel, John Edwin, you know, um, you know, uh, Hill girl, Janie Schwartz, you know, be like that. And you could see who it was and what it was. And it was artisanal and it was beautiful. So I do believe that there are spectacular horticulturalists out there doing phenomenal work. And there are also people who aren't as trained in horticulture who've devoted themselves so much so that they're producing, you know, extraordinary plants that, you know, are loaded with nutrients and love. And, and that's a great way of producing phenomenal cannabis. Yeah. My point was more about the lost genetic diversity. If we keep hybridizing and we right. don't preserve those land races, we won't have that genetic gene pool to rely on down the road. And true, we need to support both the genetics and the cultures that are preserving them. Yeah. Um, and what I don't want to see is them growing Blue Dream in Thailand. Oh, that you ever had Thai or Laotian uh, ganja? Uh, only once have I been privileged enough to have Thai, and it wasn't uh, a, a Thai stick. It was right. crumbled, but it was phenomenal. Yeah, uh, it's not only phenomenal, but, um, you know, like, I mean, I first had it, I think, uh, circa 70, and I have it when I'm in northern Thailand. It has been a couple of years, but the aroma is exactly the same. And it dries this particular, almost like, not quite mahogany brown, but this unusual brown. And, you know, you're right. I mean, you want to preserve that. You want to preserve the integrity of those strains. I See, I'd love to, uh, you know, on behalf of somebody smart and who could also afford it, I'd love to go around securing, you know, some of these things, some of these land races and, and keeping them real. And doing exactly the kind of sustainability uh, work that we're talking about here, you know. But I think it takes people with not only with conscience and with a vision, but also with money, because it costs it costs to do this stuff. It does. And if there's a way to find uh, the funding through the commercialization of the crop, like you did with kava, it's the best of both worlds. It's oh, yeah. an equitable and fair way of working with cultures and valuing their input, their preservation, and, and helping yeah. them in the long term. Well, it, um, it also proves the concept of sustainability. You know, I mean, uh, you can scale it up. You, you know, it's like with the Moroccan rosemary harvest, they're harvesting thousands of tons of, of rosemary in the wild, and they are not harming anything. Now you can't do that with most crops, nope. but where you have tens of millions of tons of wild rosemary stretching on for hundreds of miles across a range of mountains, <laughs> you cut it, it grows back. That's you it. cut it, it grows back. So, so you know, it, I mean, every plant's different. It is. Every plant's different, but I, I'm with you on, on the land race strains and I just think that this is something that some companies will go, yeah, you know, we really want to be, uh, you know, in that vanguard. Absolutely. And, you know, to your point about what a travesty would be if you went back to Jamaica and everyone was growing Blue Dream, hmm. 
if those populations go and produce male flowers, you could really change the genetics of an entire population of wild plants in a very short amount of time. Especially and on an island, yeah. Absolutely, and that's yeah. a huge risk. And again, it goes into the social responsibility and why it is worthwhile to invest in these cultures to, because we need to give them a reason to help to, to preserve sure. the plants. And sure. they can't feed their family. They have a lot of other concerns uh, beyond yes. preserving plants we may see a value in down the road. I'll tell you a, a quick funny thing about Jamaica. You know, a lot of people grow, a lot of people sell. And there's always this moment where so, with somebody who's trying to sell you ganja where they stop and they lean in and they look you in the eye and they point and they say, this is the ganja Bob Marley smoked. <laughs> okay. Now, what you can conclude from that is that any and every type of ganja that grew on the island of Jamaica, at some point, Bob Marley smoked it because everybody's got Bob Marley's weed. <laughs> it's very funny. Yeah. It is indeed. It is indeed. Now, we're talking about cultivating cannabis a little bit, but you are a strong proponent of cultivating in a legal state, cultivating your own cannabis. Tell me a little bit of why. Is it just about connecting with the plant? Is there more? Is it about, you know, saving money and controlling the input of ingredients? No, I mean, I, I am mostly out of the cannabis economy, except for buying seeds. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, it's not really that, you know, there are many factors, as you know, if you grow your own, you know your own. I know everything about this plant from the time I put a seed in soil and watered it in a little peat cup, okay, yep. until the time that I've hung it up to dry. I know everything about this plant. I know what went into it when. Uh, and, and that kind of traceability, which is basically what companies are now trying to reproduce with, say, large crops that they acquire, you know, being able to document what happens the whole way through. Mm -hmm. That's easy when you're a grower. I know I know what happened here. I know exactly what happened here. So there's that. Um, there's also the fact that, you know, I happen to have certain varieties that I like. And um, I like to grow them in New England. And I'm confident that what I produce in New England is at least somewhat different than growing these elsewhere. And I also find that there is a relationship with the plant. You know, I tend these from the time they just become these little teeny itty litty little bitty sprouts, you know, and you put like toothpicks beside them so they can kind of go up and all that stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, and eventually you get, you know, big bamboo poles and you're lashing these things to because they're so tall. They're going, mm -hmm. uh, but, but in any case, um, there is a relationship with plants. You know, uh, I spend a lot of time in the Amazon and it's not the only place where people talk about plant spirit, but certainly there's more plant spirit conversation there than I generally hear. You know, everything has a signature energy. Everything has a kind of an energetic fingerprint, if you will. And when you work with these plants, you get that I get this sense of a kind of a, you know, an energetic passage between us at the same time that I'm, you know, picking debris off of the leaves or I'm, you know, checking the buds or I'm smelling them when they start to bloom, you know, whatever that is, there's this connection. And, and I find that, um, 
there are like three people's ganja that I really like. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine up the street, I'm always around his grow. I know what he does. A woman who's a dear friend of ours, who's like one of the great horticulturists in this area and just, I don't know what she does, but her stuff is spectacular. But I know everything about what happens with it and my own. So I think that's it's it's an energetic, it's it's a lot of things, you know, and, and it's very satisfying, very satisfying to grow something anyway, you know, to grow tomatoes, but to grow phenomenal ganja and wind up with whatever, you know, 20, 30 jars of the stuff. Just go, it amazes you how much wow. it can produce. <laughs> I can give a lot of this away, you know, and because there are people who don't grow. Yep. Yeah. I, I love it. And, and what has always fascinated me on the cultivation side is the incredible diversity of the plant. And even if I have a pack of 10 different seeds, right. the phenotypic expression of the different genotypes, uh, it's phenomenal. And oh, you yeah. get excited. This one's turning purple and this one has a very different smell and this one's faster maturing. And yeah. that kind of connection to the plant yeah, it it helps me appreciate it and also pay attention to some of those nuanced details, like right. the the evolution of the aroma of the plant can change. A a three week old plant, the same exact plant can smell very different at six weeks, and then again at nine weeks. And you know, from cherry cough syrup to almost a chocolate to almost a fermented fruit, it's it's amazing the transition yeah. that the plants go through. Usually, one day only during the. Uh flowering season i'll go out and my plants uh, or at least one variety will smell like cranshaw melons oh like i close my eyes it's like oh my god a cranshaw melon <laughs> but not the next day nope next day it's like mixed berries or something it's like what happened to the cranshaw melon but no you're right you know as these terpenes express and and see i think i remember uh being up in the himalayas uh in um the Kumaon region of Northern India, uh, people grow scads of ganja there. And I remember going up to people's plants with these great big monster colas and just, oh, just breathing in the terpenes because what they grow up there, their land race strain is this astonishingly floral stuff. It's floral and it's also kind of husky resinous at the same oh. time. And the floral, you don't really even have to smoke it. That's the fact of the matter. You can just kind of do this. And the terpenes are so powerful and so mood modifying that, you know, your state is altered anyway. That's right. Just from yeah. the aroma of the, the cannabis. And, you know, to the point of the maturation and uh, the change in chemical profile, there's some wonderful research studies out there that actually look at the evolution of the cannabinoids, mm-hmm. the terpenes, even some of the flavonoids. Yep. And what I'm excited is we're going to be starting some research looking using gas chromatography. So as the plant grows, we're actually going to analyze the air it's growing in and seeing mm-hmm. what's being volatized and and Mm -hmm. what is it that we're smelling so on day one we'll we'll have an idea of what chemicals it uh you know we smell and on day 21 when it smells like crenshaw melons hopefully uh we'll get to know what chemicals are being released and maybe that can help us figure out what varieties might smell like crenshaw melons when they're actually fully mature Mm -hmm. but it's exciting to to follow the plant to pay attention to those nuanced details 
And yeah, you strike it, me as someone who pays a lot of attention to the details, Chris. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think I think it's fair to say that with the things I enjoy, I do. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily so much with the, th- <laughs> with the things that I don't enjoy as much. Although, you know, um, because I do expeditions and field work for a living, mm-hmm. it's all in the details. You know, you can't show up in Congo and go, man, I should have brought some th- CR123A batteries. I'll just run down to the nearest no place in the entire country and get me none, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So it's like, so you have to, you know, and also uh, there are thousands of details that you know how it is. I'm sure it's this way, you know, in all the various activities in which you engage, you just get used to them, you know? Um, And with me, some of the details are critical for safety Yes. Um, you know, some of the details are critical for safety of others in my company. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. So in that sense, I, I am I am detail oriented for sure. With the plants, though, it's just it's kind of like magic. You know, it's like I'm a witness to magic and I sort of help it along a little bit. But yeah, not so much. Although I, I do one thing. I Wait. grossly overfeed my plants. With organic food or how do you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, they're like the fish emulsions and stuff where they say, you know, don't use more than a half a teaspoon. Oh, that's complete nonsense. I pour pour it into a watering can, add some water, do it weekly. And they're just like, they want to do the Tarzan yell, man. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Plants want to be fed. But when people start loading them with chemicals, Right. What you have to remember is the chemical elemental structure of a lot of these fertilizers right. very fast to metabolize and it will yeah. burn the plant within Burning the yeah. fertilizer program. The plant has to rely on the biological diversity of the rhizosphere right. and those, those uh, bacteria and fungi are breaking down these huge sure. organic chains sure. to feed the plant, but it's a great way to feed the plant and they get as much as they can. And that's yeah. why so many of, uh, great organic farmers really focus on keeping a very live rhizosphere, very biologically sure. active. You know, seeing mushrooms is like a big thumbs up because that means you have a great mixture of soil and moisture right. content. Right, right. Uh, and it is how you get healthy plants. So it mm-hmm. sounds like you feed them well and they enjoy the Massachusetts sun. They get an awful lot of guano and they get uh, lobster mulch and. <laughs> good stuff. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So other than uh, cultivating the cannabis, you know, for yourself and working on sustainability, do you have any other passions, uh, you know, that relate to cannabis or relate to travel that have broadened your, you know, worldview? Well, Travel has been the single greatest educational experience I could possibly have in life. And it's also been a spectacular gift. I mean, you know, when I set out, um, it's not the same if I'm going to a cosmetic convention in Munich. But if I'm setting out to, you know, someplace, uh, you know, South Africa or you know, I mean, name it, Syria, whatever, different places that I've been to, you know, I'm happy about it. I'm enthused about it. And there's always this opportunity to meet people. Um, When I was uh, first in the Amazon in 1997, 
a 103-year-old shaman, this woman named Maria Sina, who I met, who was amazing. Uh, she sat me down and she said, you bridge the worlds. This is important for you to do. And she talked with me about communicating about one culture to another and how this was an important mission. And um, I've been very fortunate to uh, be well-received in media. So I had uh, like nine years on Fox News Health in 100 mm -hmm. countries. And you know, I did the Oz show like 15 times before it sort of went to Oprah. And, you know, I've been on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of TV shows and, and radio shows. And what that does for me is it gives me the opportunity to spread the message about people that, you know, maybe others wouldn't know. You know, if you could see the Moroccan women picking the pistols out of the crocuses by hand mm -hmm. in the saffron harvest, it would blow your brains out. It's yeah. so exotic and so amazing. And they sit you down and they show you exactly how to do it. And I'm like Mr. Organized, meticulous, detail-oriented. I only break the pistols in half. And they're like, no, you do it like this. And they go, <laughs> I go oh, okay, <laughs> break it in half. Oh, no, no, like this. Okay, <laughs> break it in half. You know, these people have skills. <laughs> they have generations and generations and generations of, of experiences. I went to the uh, Moroccan olive harvest, okay? I love olives, eat a lot of olives. Yeah. Entire communities, men, women, young, old, babies, grannies, they're all out there. You know, they're all out there in the olive orchards. They've got food, they've got their water, the kids are playing, you know, the men are up in the trees beating the olives out of the trees with long sticks. Grannies are sorting out bad ones on blankets. Kids are running baskets to scales. Um, you know, you see this kind of stuff and you realize that Many people live very, very, very differently from us, and they have things to offer us in terms of, you look at that sense of community, and, you know, a stupid person would go, that's child labor. No, it's not child labor. I have a labor. longing for it. It sounds like it's an incredibly communal community it, and family building affair. Amazing. I and mean, everybody's having a great time, yeah, you know, and, toward and, the common goal out in nature. Oh yeah. It's, um, it's incredible. It is. It is. And so, and so I have, I have benefited immensely from the travel, from the people. And that's my, I consider that my reward for doing the botanical work. The botanical work is what makes all this happen you know, and makes it possible and gets me deep, deep, deep into cultures. But it's the people and the place. It's the payoff. It's like, wow, man, you know, I know I got friends in Siberia. How cool is that? <laughs> that is really cool. I will tell you that. And it sounds like the olive harvest was amazing in itself. Yep. I got the privilege of, of seeing an Italian olive harvest. Oh, wow. And the way they set up the blankets on the hill and yeah. then they actually roll the olives down. It, it's incredible the way the different cultures have sure. figured out their methods to be as efficient as they can and still, you know, not with a giant house-sized vehicle that goes over and just right. yanks them all out of the tree. Well, um, 
and you bring up, I think, in that a kind of an essential point. People tinker with plants endlessly. Yes. If you want to figure out a way to get olives from this tree up the hill to that place down below where you can carry it off by donkey, well, rolling it down the hill on blankets makes a lot of sense, but I bet it took generations to figure it out. Sure. You know, if you follow the the uh, coffee from when it was crushed up and put into balls of fat and eaten like a survival snack in Ethiopia to what it is today as this fine aromatic beverage, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years of messing around with this stuff before it turned into coffee as we know it. And, and so many things, you know, and, and now with cannabis, um, we're tinkering even more. And as you said, you know, through chromatographic examination and, and other methods, you can say, okay, right now, you know, for some reason, this particular variety is expressing a lot of limonene. And then, you know, a week later, there's more caryophyllene. And then, you know, and you're like, okay, you know, alpha basobolol, whatever, you're following these things. It's tinkering, pure and simple. This is what we do. And, and, learning about it. I, I mean, I just love how much there still is to know how much we don't know about the plant. Oh, yeah. Um, the different chemical metabolites just, I mean, even five years ago, the scientists talked about 200 different metabolites. We're up uh -huh. to 500. And I think you espouse that we're probably going to be well past that very soon. You know, good, healthy plants are very complex. Yes. And anytime, you know, anytime people try to reduce plants, and I'm not suggesting that purified alkaloids don't have their place. I mean, reserpine as a medicine genuinely does lower blood pressure. Okay, that's real. That's true. Um, you know, and, and some other uh, some other single plant compounds can be life saving, you know, certainly we, we've seen that. Uh, but, you know, in general, there is this astonishing not only, not only an astonishing panoramic display of compounds in good, healthy plants, but we have co-evolved with these for millions and millions of years. They are part of our biology, you know, and we share biology. I mean, the very same antioxidants that inhibit, you know, advanced cellular decay in plants due to exposure to heat, light, air, moisture, and time are the very same ones that biologically in our bodies also help our cells to, you know, to prevent ourselves from being corrupted by, uh, you know, reactive oxygen species. And, and we see this, you know, uh, you, you look at the venous plants, you know, circulating nutrients. We do that in our bodies. I mean, we share some anatomy with plants in addition to physiology. But the point is, we have evolved with these. And so I believe that there are uh, people who have figured out in indigenous cultures how to pay attention to that in a spiritual way. And I think that adding that to our technical and very advanced analytical way, which is also of great value, makes it makes it more of a healthy whole. Absolutely. And, and so having and appreciating that full assortment of compounds that the plants can produce, instead of just distilling it into the one singular metabolite that happens to be psychoactive and get you high, it's a very different experience. And I really 
I hope that the cannabis industry doesn't move towards more isolate and more disparate. But what I've personally seen is half of the market still focuses on flower. There's mm-hmm. still a pretty big demand for full spectrum. Sure. But there is this group that just wants to produce the lowest cost THC Delta 9 possible. And at the end of the day, they're going to reduce their outdoor field or their biosynthesized, you know, yeast produced. THC. Yeah, yeast produced into a, a, another product and right. uh, where that has a place. I, I really want to preserve that full spectrum, the diverse population of chemical compounds and also the plants that, that elicit that, that provide that for us. You know, what gives me hope? Um, I mean, I, I have it anyway, but um, you know, for a, a number of years, the, the biggest brands of beer in the United States were basically water with a head on it. Mm-hmm. And then Jim Cook came along and started Sam Adams. Yep. And um, it's uh, the fifth largest brewer in the United States. Okay. And, and and he proved, he proved that, you know, with like old strain hops and, you know, brewing brewing practices that are more costly and more artisanal, not only could you do something on a smaller scale, but you could do something on a very big scale. And if we're going to have quality cannabis products and not just like, as you say, you know, THC isolate, um, you know, as a result of yeast fermentation where there aren't even plants involved, um, you know, I think we can prove no doubt. I mean, we're already proving it that, that the artisanal market and the the land race strains are highly prized, and I think I think there'll be a number of us who'll carry that forward um, through time, even as the Budweisers and the Millers of the cannabis world, you know, uh, sort of you know, stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. That's it. And look, there's always going to be someone. I love the song lyric reference, by the way. Uh, I there's always going to be someone that can produce it for less. So Mm -hmm. if your goal is just a race to the bottom, then ultimately we will never have that quality. But to your point, the craft producer, just like in craft beer, there's always a market for that. And it's a unique differentiator and, you know, some social responsibility, some uh, corporate responsibility could preserve the plants, preserve the genetics, but that's going to be the backbone of these craft producers, these sure, diverse sure. genetic pools, because the race to the bottom, it's not a it's not a race. I want to see the finish line. Look, there there are many different uh, economic groups and there are people who need cannabis, who need it cheaply and who ne- can't necessarily afford to tap in as well to a, a, an artisanal market. And I think part of it is making that more available to people in all uh, strata of society. Uh, but I also recognize there's always been, and there will always will there always will be a a quality buyer, someone who says, "Yeah, you know, I could get those canned garbanzo beans, but I, you know, I will like this organic brand better, and you know, it's a buck more a can, but it's organic." Yeah. Um, there will always be that. And I think that there are now tens of millions of us who are in that group. Uh, and we can, um, 
you know, we can carry forth practices and principles that are sustainable and harmonious and are also in keeping with the fundamentally friendly, fraternal nature of cannabis itself. That's it. And, you know, hopefully we can be good stewards of the plant and really allow it to uh, proliferate and prosper in the future. Like you said, it, it didn't evolve in a vacuum. It's a co-evolution and we need to be responsible or we won't be able to have these resources in the future. So before we uh, depart today, Chris, is there any comments on the supply chain uh, or on the industry as a whole that we can focus on a takeaway message or action that might lead us to uh, a better and more sustainable cannabis? Well, I, I think it really is up to us to pay attention to the sustainability practices of other sectors that have figured a lot of this out. You know, some of the very good herb suppliers have figured out different aspects of sustainability. Some of the fruit suppliers, some of the, you know, people in all different sectors, they've figured out how to do these things. We don't actually have to reinvent the wheel. Um, but I also think that, you know, just as as my wife and I saw with that uh, Mendocino uh, cannabis cooperative where the stuff was just like amazing and you knew exactly who grew what and it was all organic, you know, um, I, I think that I think that this part of the market will remain vigorous, whether it does so within the uh, purview of the legal scene or if it does as it has since time immemorial outside of that, uh, mm -hmm. we'll see. But um, I'm encouraged and I love the idea that more and more people who want to can grow, you know, in different states around the country. That is really a wonderful thing. And I think a great note to finish on. Chris, is there any way people can reach out to you or follow some of your adventures? Well, uh, my website is medicinehunter.com and people can go there and there's a, there's way too much information and there are links to about 150 or so TV things. And th there's a lot of photography and from the field information about medicinal plants. Um, you can also look up medicine hunter on Facebook. I have a couple of pages there and, um, you know, I post somewhat regularly and I'm also on LinkedIn and Instagram. So Medicine Hunter, just grouse around. I, I've got good SEO. Um, you know, I may be a dirt under the fingernails, sleep on a boat kind of guy. But thankfully, uh, my wife is remarkably savvy about these things. So we also have that going too. That is incredible. And behind every, uh, you know, wonderful man is a wonderful woman. It sounds like you found yours. For sure. Um, Chris, thank you so much for joining us all today and for sharing your views, your travels, and your thoughts. Well, thank uh, you, David. It has been a pleasure. And this is David Kessler with The Future of Growth signing off, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Future of Growth. We love to hear from our audience. Have a great idea for a guest or a topic you'd like us to cover? Thoughts you want to share? reach out to media at agrify.com. Don't forget to stay connected with Agrify at Agrify Corp on all platforms and by visiting us at www.agrify.com. See you next time for another episode of The Future of Growth.